Our young people cannot be used to thinking in a critical manner at university and work and then come to church and find that their questions are not being answered appropriately. That's just unacceptable. We must give full and informed answers when we are asked a question, any question. We must be sure that the education we offer is of the highest caliber, and this demands integrity and accountability. Welcome to Coffee with Bishop Suriel, a podcast for all things Coptic. This is a conversation about authentic Christian faith, Coptic history, patristic writings, the family, arts and music, religious education, youth matters, evangelism, and much more. Bishop Suriel likes his coffee like he likes his conversation, light, sweet, and scorching. We'll be joined by an array of guests who'll share their experiences, their backgrounds, and their insights to bring about an exciting discussion, and we hope you agree. Enjoy the podcast, and please welcome our host, Bishop Suriel. In this episode, His Grace Bishop Suriel will be discussing theological education in the Coptic Church. Your Grace? Irini Pasi, peace be with you. Welcome back to episode 12, and I hope you have some good coffee with you or your favorite beverage. Today I do not have any guests, but rather I want to share with you some thoughts and reflections on theological education in the Coptic Church. This might be a bit of a longer episode, and I hope that you would listen to it to the end because I think there is some important things that we all need to really think about seriously. If you can't watch it all at once, perhaps you may divide it up into two sessions. But I really hope that you'll watch it through to the end. The Coptic Church that started as the lands of immigration about 50 years ago is now very established in the West, no longer seen as a diaspora, but a fully established church with numerous dioceses and patriarchal jurisdictions throughout the Western world. So we are now truly national churches in each of the countries where Copts have settled. Our call to ministry in the 21st century is challenging, certainly more challenging than when the first Coptic churches started in the West. These challenges raise some serious and pertinent questions regarding theological education and the formation of future clergy, servants, and church leaders. The Coptic Church, in its rich history and heritage, is not alien to myriads of challenges. In each period, she faced unique challenges and reflecting on how the Church dealt with these challenges can provide for us many lessons for consideration. Today I wish to focus on two historical periods, one ancient, the School of Alexandria, and one modern, 
the work of St. Habib Gerges in theological education and draw from these some thoughts and reflections for Coptic theological education in the 21st century in the West. In Book 5 and 6 of his Ecclesiastical History, Eusebius tells of the Didascalion of Alexandria, what today we like to think of as the school of Alexandria, and enumerates its heads, Pantinus, Clement, and Origen. And he presents what at first glance seems like a neat succession of leaders in an ecclesiastical institution, and his readers are tempted to ponder the size of its supposed campus. The historical evidence, however, does not add up. A more careful analysis of the sources leads us to a rather different picture of this formidable entity. There are no buildings, classrooms, or desks. Instead, there are learned teachers and avid students eager to hear the Word of God. The matter may perhaps upset some people, yet an honest assessment of our sources leads us to a much deeper appreciation of the beauty of ancient Christian heritage. Ronald Hine, who published an extensive study on origin through Oxford University Press, presents the most plausible picture of the state of affairs in the milieu of Christianity in Alexandria. He speaks of schools instead of a single school, at once acknowledging the diversity and rich complexity of Christian teaching in the cosmopolitan city. There were likely five famous Christian teachers in 2nd century Alexandria, Basilides, Valentinus, Pantinus, the one origin designates the Hebrew, and Clement of Alexandria. Origen would himself emerge as a teacher early in the 3rd century and would prove to be the most formidable scholar of the Christian East. One of the five teachers mentioned above, Basilides and Valentinus, propagated teachings incompatible with proto-Orthodoxy. The remainder, however, deserve our full attention. We know a little about Pantinus from the writings of Clement, but we do not have any of his writings. Clement and Origen, on the other hand, have bequeathed us enough material for a lifetime of reading and decades of study. Pantinus, Clement, and Origen, like their contemporaneous teachers, spent their efforts tutoring students in what would have looked like an ancient philosophical school. Schools of this sort were not necessarily academic in the modern sense of the term. They could be as small as a teacher and a single student, and could perish with the death of the teacher or otherwise survive under a successor. Indeed, was the character of the teacher that attracted potential students. Teachers would become spiritual guides to their students who would gather around their teacher for years on end. 
the schools of antiquity were fundamentally oriented to texts they could be described as textual communities, and that their teachers interacted with important texts in three ways. One, text functions as teacher. Two, text and teacher act in concert or together. And three, teacher as text. St. Gregory, the wonder worker's panegyric, is full of high praise for Origen, his teacher, and made clear that for him, his teacher became his text. Clement and Origen's works themselves fit within the second category, though they write in a rather different style. Clement often structures his works topically and makes use of texts that serve his literary efforts. Origen employs a similar arrangement in some of his works, yet in others, especially his exegetical works, he arranges his teaching by the structure of the text under examination. Origen had himself been a grammaticos, that is, one who taught children in the second level of their schooling, after they had learned the basics of reading. The grammaticos would treat a text in four stages. One, criticism to determine what the ancient author had written. Two, reading and recitation, which included memorizing the text for recitation. Three, explanation of the text, which included the meaning of unusual words, grammatical forms, etymology, as well as the content or story of the text. And four, judgment or the moral teaching of the text. Origen would soon make use of his rhetorical training and devote his efforts exclusively to the study of Christian texts when persecution broke out under Septimus Severus from 193 to 211 AD. And as Eusebius recounts in Book 6 of the Ecclesiastical History, there was not a single teacher remaining to preach the Word of God. Two brothers, Plutarch and Heraclius, we are told, seek out Origen to teach them about Christ, and they become his first two students. And Eusebius soon names nine of Origen's students who soon after baptism went to their martyrdom. These were Plutarch, who was one of the first two to seek Origen out for instruction, Serenus, Heraclides, Hero, a second named Serenus, a woman named Herias, Basilides, a woman named Potamina, and her mother Marcella. What then was the goal of the school of origin? Hein summarizes this for us beautifully. Quote, Origen's school, like Clement's before him, was not intended to form specialists in texts or ideas, whether secular or sacred, but to form a Christian person. The real subject was the virtues, practical wisdom, self-control, justice, and courage. In Origen's school, 
Gregory Thamatorgus says, Students were incited to virtue more by his works than by his words. His example caused his students to love the virtues. Gregory judged the ultimate goal of origin school to be that a person should progress through all the virtues and having been made like God with a pure mind, approach him and remain in him. Clement and Origen were concerned with the formation, not of learned people, but of spiritual servants of God. What are the implications of this short discussion on the School of Alexandria for theological education in the Coptic Church today? First, the question on the hearts of many, must our theological schools be accredited? If we are honest with ourselves, the issue begs our deepest vulnerabilities as a Christian minority emerging into the daylight of freedom of religious expression. Surrendering to any process of accreditation necessarily forces us to put in words and in writing what we say we are committed to and provides opportunity for others to hold us accountable to our cause. Accreditation is not a matter to be taken lightly, nor approached hastily, but is undoubtedly a necessary step if we as a church are serious about our commitment to bring the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. I will speak further about accreditation towards the end of this episode. How can we return to the former glory of Alexandrine Christian education? 1. We must first recognize that the primary function of the theological schools is to discipline our people to the Christian life, and we must make use of the ancient Christian texts bequeathed to us to achieve this purpose. We must, secondly, we must return to the Alexandrine text of the Holy Scriptures, which is carefully preserved in the Coptic textual witnesses. Translation of these works, or adoption of the English language versions of the Holy Bible, most faithful to the Alexandrine text, is undoubtedly necessary across Coptic churches in the West. 3. We must allow the writers of antiquity to speak to us today, both by consulting translations of the ancient sources and through the mouths of their modern readers. We must oblige our responsibility of academic honesty and have the courage to be accurate precise and specific in our research efforts. Just as it is incorrect to say that the School of Alexandria taught this or that, since it has been shown that Origen and Clement conducted their own schools, so to speak, so too, it is erroneous to assert that the Coptic Church teaches this or that except in those instances where 
the ancient liturgical prayers of the Coptic Orthodox Church reflect a certain teaching. In the case of modern teachers and scholars, it is preferable to acknowledge that Bishop X taught this, Father Y taught that. Every modern scholar must bear the responsibility of academic honesty and must measure him or herself against the Alexandrine tradition that extends almost 2,000 years. Each of us must recognize that to justify one's knowledge of Christian faith and doctrine without recourse to the ancient writings that emerged in Alexandria is precisely to preach ourselves and not authentic orthodoxy. Let us now shift our focus to our modern Coptic history. First, it is important to note that little is known about the theological developments in Egypt immediately following the Arab conquest, and whatever we know comes from the literature of isolated theologians rather than from any theological school of thought. The 13th century is considered by some scholars as the age of Coptic theology and Coptic dogmatics which was followed by 300 years of silence in the field of Coptic theology. By the late Middle Ages, the situation in the Coptic Church was quite dire. A 17th century German theologian and traveler describes his visit to a Coptic Sunday liturgy. He writes, quote, They, the Copts, do not keep or have preachers nor are those good priests suitable. Instead of the sermon, there is reading after the Gospel of a homily from a book called Tafsir, or Explanations, taken from one of the fathers, such as Basil, Chrysostom, Cyril, Theophilus, and people of that sort. For some time, the Franciscans have been preaching in Arabic among the Copts, and as a result, they have been converting Copts to Catholicism with their exemplary lifestyle. End of quote. By the middle of the 19th century, historians note that the clergy, reflecting their social surroundings, were ignorant and negligent of their religious duties. Coming from lower classes of the community, they often made up for their previous privations either by mis misusing church property or by selling their religious services. The church, with widespread ignorance, had a bleak future and was under external threat from Western missionaries while facing constant internal struggles with the educated lay people calling for reform. By this time, Protestant and Catholic missionaries were active in Egypt, and these missionaries began posing threats to Coptic identity, as the missionaries were far more theologically educated than the Coptic clergy of that time. The need for a clerical school became pressing. The first attempt was the opening of a clerical college on January 13, 1875, during the papacy of Pope Cyril V. 
This institution was enthusiastically hailed as a new incarnation of the ancient catechetical school of Alexandria. However, few of the students or monks from the monasteries applied themselves to their studies, and the seminary survived only a few months. By the end of the 19th century, the Coptic Church urgently needed a seminary for the formation of priests. And St. Habib Gerges comments, Since religious service was among the most esteemed services to the Church, and its position was the highest, this required, therefore, that pastors be sufficiently prepared in the Orthodox faith. They needed to be especially cared for and to be chosen from among those with excellent qualifications from the sons of the community generally. Various efforts and finances are also required for the sake of these pastors who will lead the community to the place of safety and for the benefit hoped for. End of quote. Habib Gerges could not imagine a priest serving without the education necessary to equip him for such an important role. He understood how impossible it would be for any person to be employed in a profession or trade without proper training. How much more important was this for a priest who was responsible for people's souls? And he wrote this, but the Church cannot present to us true leaders, counselors, and reformers unless her leaders and pastors are specially trained to practice their lofty and critical roles. Who can be compared to them except those with similar critical positions in life? An engineer cannot take on this role without proper training in the faculty of engineering. The physician cannot be trusted over people's bodies and souls unless he receives both theoretical and practical education in his faculty. The situation is similar also for a judge, lawyer, teacher, farmer, and mechanic, as well as others who are comparable. Hence, a religious pastor is not exempt from this. Since a pastor worthy of this title and worthy to be responsible for souls needs to be educated in religious and secular subjects, but it is important that the priest perfect the sacraments and characteristics of his profession than any of those other professions, so that he may fulfill his obligations and carry out his burdens. In this way, he may transcend to a most eminent relationship with the eternal souls that he cares for. End of quote. According to Habib Gerges, in the second half of the 19th century, there was only one priest in all of Egypt who was both capable of preaching and well-versed in the Orthodox faith, Higomen Philotheus Ibrahim Baghdadi, who lived from 1837 till 1904. This historical background underscores the importance of the dedication ceremony that took place on November 29, 1893, 
a date widely considered to be the official opening of the Coptic Orthodox Seminary in Cairo, which Habib Gerges considered to be the greatest success of Pope Cyril V. And when the seminary opened, it had no teacher of religion or theology. The first dean, Yusuf Mankarios, would simply choose some religious books and hand them out to the students to read aloud in front of him. The students complained repeatedly to the Pope and to the lay community council about the lack of proper theological instruction, but to no avail. This bizarre situation continued for four years and led many students to leave the seminary. And there was one attempt to rectify the situation on January 13, 1896, the Lay Community Council appointed the elderly Father Baghdadi to teach at the seminary. Sadly, however, he lasted only two weeks, collapsing in class because of old age and illness and never returning. Habib Gerges was one of 12 graduates of the Great Coptic School who were chosen to be part of the first class of 40 students to enter the seminary. Many of his cohort dropped out because of lack of interest or academic ability, but Habib Gerges was a bright scholar who was appointed by a special decree to teach religion on a temporary basis during his final year. He graduated shortly thereafter, the first student to do so, and on May 8, 1898, Having shown great potential and success as an instructor, he was promptly appointed to a full-time position teaching theology and homiletics. Habib Gerges compared the relationship between the seminary and the Coptic community to that between the heart and the body. He says, For as the duty of the heart is to pump blood to the organs of the body, accordingly, from this spring, the spirit of teaching, guidance, and the transmission of the good news of salvation will spread among people. End of quote. The mission of the seminary was twofold to teach Orthodox theology and doctrine, and to form priests and preachers who would enlighten members of the Coptic community, both young and old. The first statutes for the seminary were formulated in 1893 and prescribed a five-year period of study and listed the subjects to be taught, or were taught by foreigners with the exception of theology, which was to be taught from the third year of the course onwards by a capable Orthodox priest. The 1912 statutes covered numerous administrative matters. All students were required to live at the seminary, sleeping in dormitories or large rooms, only with special permission could the student lodge outside the seminary. Class sizes were capped at 25 students. Admission requirements included passing an entrance exam, presenting three letters of recommendation, including one from the student's diocesan bishop a minimum age in practice 
of 16 years old and at least four years of elementary school education. Each applicant had to undergo a medical examination and be physically fit without blemish or physical deformity. He had to nominate a sponsor, an individual who would vouch for his character, his commitment to completing his studies, and his willingness to be employed wherever the need arose and to continue in religious ministry. The statutes also covered the lives of priests and teachers beyond the confines of the seminary. For example, the board could transfer a preacher from one place to another according to need and circumstance. Preachers were required to prepare for the board an annual report of their ministry. Parish priests could allow only graduates of the seminary to preach in their parishes, and they had to obtain written permission from the Pope. The seminary kept a record of qualified preachers, and each year announced the names of the new graduate preachers along with their places of ministry. These rules served two purposes. They ensured that those who preached were trained and formed at the seminary and preached according to the Coptic faith, and they prevented followers of other religious denominations from infiltrating Coptic parishes and preaching views not in accordance with Coptic Orthodox theology. Such measures gave the Coptic community a layer of protection by ensuring that those who preached came from a reliable source approved by the Pope himself. When St. Javier Gerges became dean in 1918, he inherited an institution with virtually no organizational structure, vision, or sense of direction. The curriculum was inadequate in many ways, particularly with regard to religious and theological education, the very purpose for which the seminary had been established. Financial constraints led to friction between Habib Gerges and the lay community council, and St. Habib Gerges felt stymied in his efforts to improve the seminary's infrastructure, increase faculty salaries, meet daily running expenses, and much more. As dean of the seminary, Habib Gerges had his work cut out for him. He took on a monumental list of reforms under dire circumstances, embracing a task that might have discouraged the most formidable and talented of educators. He described his love for the seminary and his zeal for education and education and theological reform in strong metaphorical language, liking it to the shedding of blood putting one's life and spirit at its service, and the kindling of fire and hope in one's heart. Very powerful terms. Following ongoing financial difficulties, a committee presented a report in February of 1927 which acknowledged the seminary's financial difficulties and the economic crisis that the country was facing asking only for what was considered to be essential, fundamental, and practical. 
Acknowledging Habib Gerges' great endeavors in developing the seminary religiously, spiritually, and academically, the committee sought the support of the Patriarchate Church Council, the Lay Community Council, and the Pope to raise standards even further. The committee wanted all faculty to be appropriately qualified, both academically and spiritually with preference given to clerical school graduates who had completed the higher level course. This would entail transferring some unqualified faculty members to other schools. The report also stressed the importance of having qualified lecturers, preferably chosen from among the higher level. Graduates of the seminary or from those holding higher diplomas from other schools, colleges, or universities. The low salaries paid to local faculty affected their morale and gave them little incentive to improve their academic standards. St. Habib Gerges understood their predicament and made repeated requests for increased pay to no avail. He wrote bitterly to the Patriarchate Church Council saying, I have said that the moral state of the teachers is unacceptable and their spirits are low with pain and overburdened with hardships. How can a teacher work while his mind is disturbed and his soul is in pain and in a miserable state? End of quote. Being poorly paid, the existing lecturers showed little desire to develop their knowledge and skills nor that they exert themselves to strive for academic excellence among their students. The report that was presented alongside the budget emphasized that the seminary was the spinal cord of the Coptic Church and the measure of its revival and refinement, and argued that the proposed new system would raise standards to a level suited to modern developments and circumstances. Despite all this work by a committee that the Patriarchate Church Council had expressly, despite all the work by a committee that the Patriarchate Church Council had expressly appointed, there was no immediate response. Habib Gerges followed up with a letter to the council on May 31, 1927 after the academic year had ended, seeking a response so that improvements could begin at the start of the new academic year. Almost two months later, he received a hasty and brief reply requesting a report on the last academic year before the committee could look into the new curriculum. Both St. Habib Gerges and the committee must have been deeply frustrated by this apparent lack of interest from the very body that had demanded such a thorough inquiry and imposed such a stringent deadline. The reasons for the Patriarchate Church Council's ambivalence are unclear. The most likely explanation is a lack of finances to implement their recommendations, although the Council may also have been trying to exert its authority over the seminary. Habib Gerges regularly wrote in sorrow to the Patriarchate Church Council, 
about its lack of financial support. And the following appeal is from 1929, but the sentiments expressed remain true throughout Habib Gerges' career as dean. He says this, This state has disadvantaged the welfare of the college and the welfare of education, and if this continues, the situation will be worse. Who then will carry that responsibility? This, no doubt, is an injustice that no member of the council would accept, and since I have raised this complaint and have not had a response except that the budget does not allow for more, why then does the budget accommodate all the patriarchate's facilities, yet is restrictive only toward the clerical school, which is more worthy than any other facility and should be given attention more than any other work? End quote. Habib Gerges appointed foreign lecturers to teach subjects for which no qualified Coptic teachers could be found. For instance, in October 1928, he announced that the seminary's elite group of instructors of theology, the humanities and law, had been joined by the Honorable Mr. John Leonard Wilson, who held a higher degree in theology from Oxford University to teach philosophy of religion. Habib Gerges understood that appointing a highly credentialed scholar from Oxford would help raise both academic standards and the prestige of the seminary. While he did not allow non-Orthodox doctrine to be taught to his students, St. Habib Gerges looked beyond dogma to the other benefits that such a scholar could bring. In May 1942, Habib Gerges outlined the further refinement of the curriculum of the seminary. He restructured the seminary by dividing it into nine streams. There would now be only one level for the main course of study, which was primarily for those aspiring to the priesthood, requiring four years to complete. The Sunday school teacher's course would require three years of part-time study comprising two lessons per week. The clerical course for ordained priests would also be part-time over a three-year period, but with six lessons per week, into which Habib Gerges proposed introducing the subject of comparative theology. Unfortunately, the 1942 plan only partially came to fruition because of a lack of funding. In 1946, Habib Gerges introduced further part-time study in the evenings for university graduates who were employed and yet still desired to, to serve as volunteers in their own parishes. Many leaders of Sunday schools from Cairo and Giza enrolled in the seminary at that time, although women were not admitted until October of 1959 nearly eight years after Habib Gerges' death. Sadly, however, the Lay Community Council ordered the closure of this new graduate seminary during Habib Gerges' last illness. In fact, I believe it caused him to be paralyzed near the end of his life. 
The seminary still struggled to find qualified Coptic Orthodox faculty members to teach such subjects, eventually conceding that if no suitable Coptic teacher could be found, a theological teacher might be recruited from another, preferably Orthodox denomination. The depressingly low pay rates were still in place, even in 1948. The average teacher was earning around 12 Egyptian pounds per month. Gerges as dean was paid just over 40 Egyptian pounds per month while the cantor, Mikhail Gerges, was earning less than four Egyptian pounds per month for teaching liturgical hymnology. There was also the continuing dilemma over whether or not to send students abroad to gain higher qualifications in Western seminaries and universities. Habib Gerges struggled with this predicament throughout his career, in November 1945, the committee suggested that some of the seminary's brighter graduates be sent abroad to study Hebrew and Greek, in order that they might, upon their return, replace the foreign faculty members. It was also decided at this time to form an administrative committee for the seminary, consisting of three metropolitans, chosen by the Holy Synod, three members of the organizing committee, the dean, and two members of the faculty. Its role would be to examine every nomination to the priesthood from across Egypt and present its recommendations to the Pope for his approval. Any ordination carried out in defiance of that system would be considered void. This move, would bring an unprecedented degree of centralization to the Church and greater authority for the Pope. Habib Gerges wished only to ensure that those who had earned their qualifications at the seminary would be ordained to the priesthood and no one else. Whether this goal was achievable is open to question. The decree was followed to a great extent during the papacy of Pope Cyril VI, but less closely thereafter. It is important to note that alongside his diligent work in theological education, Habib Gerges worked in parallel on expanding the work of Sunday schools in the Coptic Church. In fact, he based much of the work of Sunday schools at the seminary, which was a strategic move as the seminary was the heart of education in the church and became an environment where Habib Gerges could test his ideas and theories on both faculty and students, with the seminary also providing the right environment for the protection of pedagogical approaches, textbooks, and curricula. Ultimately, did Habib Gerges achieve his ambitions for the Coptic Orthodox Seminary? Because his work there was central to his mission of reforming the Coptic Church and community. Success or failure in that enterprise meant success or failure at broader reform. The verdict of history is not unanimous. In his 1938 book, 
on the history of the seminary, St. Habib Gergis observed that in the 45 years since its opening in 1893, the seminary had produced a total of 320 graduates, two metropolitans, 209 priests, and 87 preachers and teachers. He did not mention the cantors. And acknowledged that 22 graduates were still without work. Many of the graduates had served the church and the community in capacities other than the priesthood, such as by teaching Sunday school, leading youth groups, and joining Coptic societies. Graduates of the seminary had a profound influence on the Coptic church and community. Nonetheless, later in life, Habib Gerges soberly reflected on the seminary's progress and said this, The theological school was established half a century ago. It should have reached by now the standard of the finest colleges. Regretfully, however, it did not receive the support needed for its development. Instead, it spent most of its life in wasted struggle fighting to survive and develop according to the weak means it possessed. End of quote. The culmination of Habib Gerges's work at the seminary was its official recognition and accreditation in July 1948 by Egypt's Minister of Education. And I actually have a copy of that document. The minister recognized the qualification granted by the Coptic Orthodox Seminary as the equivalent of a four-year bachelor's degree. Nevertheless, the seminary never reached the international standards to which Habib Gerges aspired. The prerequisites for admission remained low, as relatively few young Coptic men were interested in studying theology or pursuing a priestly calling, a vocation that enjoyed little prestige in the Coptic community at that time. Habib Gerges never achieved his ambition of an educated priesthood, made up solely of men with a proper theological training from his seminary. Although one can sense through his writings the bitterness he felt at the end of his life because his goals were not fully met, at the same time, he hoped for a brighter future, one in which the next generation would carry on his legacy, recognize the central role that his educational reform policies would play in preserving Coptic identity and assure a successful future for the Coptic community. Habib Gerges's desire was that the Coptic Orthodox Seminary not only graduate priests, preachers, and teachers, but also reformers in every sense of the word. It is important to note that during this period, authors would at times use Western writings as references. Even some of Habib Gerges's works, especially those on the sacraments, were influenced by Catholic writings. At times, Protestant apologetics was used against Catholics 
and Catholic apologetics against Protestants. While some efforts were made by certain individuals to translate selected patristic texts such as Yasa Abdel Masih, Murad Kamil, Yusuf Habib, and Father Morcos Daoud, it was not until the time of the Bishop of Education in 1962, that is Bishop Shenouda, later Pope Shenouda III of Blessed Memory, and his writings and sermons, along with the publishing of the writings of Father Matthew the Poor and the work of the Center of Patristic Studies in Cairo, which started in 1979, that we begin to see a more widespread use of patristic texts. This begs the question, what were some of the main sources used during the first seven decades of the 20th century, particularly the first half of the 20th century? Father Moros Daoud, for instance, spent most of his effort translating the works of F.B. Meyer and Matthew Henry from English into Arabic. This raises some serious questions about the formation of theological thinking throughout the Church, particularly in this period, which many see as a time of reform. What does this history have to say to us today? in the 21st century. We see that Habib Gerges was responding to a pressing issue of his time, a desperate need for educated clergy, servants and church leaders who were able to ensure that the Coptic faithful would be fed through orthodoxy in light of active Western missionaries in Egypt. What are our challenges today then? Why do we need theological education? We have seen significant change in the last 50 years, with the rate of change increasing every decade. We now live in a volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world, and we need to prepare leaders that can lead in an ever-changing landscape and equip them to do so. In our parishes, we are serving up to six generations, including Generation Y, those born between 1980 and 1985, Generation Z, or here in America they call them Generation Z, those born between 1995 and 2000, and the latest generation, Generation Alpha, those born between 2010 and today. Today's world is increasingly secular, where religion holds little place in mainstream society. Our people particularly, our young people, are radically cha challenged by atheism, secularism, relativism, amongst others. How will we faithfully minister to them? How will we serve the future generations? The need for high-quality theological education is now more pressing than in the 20th century. The world is very different today than in previous centuries, let alone previous decades. 
particularly in the West, or even just look at this past year with COVID-19 and how the whole world has changed. When we are talking about theological education, we are talking about the preparation of our future priests, bishops, servants, missionaries, and church leaders. In 2013, His Holiness Pope Tawadros II invited Father Dr. John Baer, the Regis Chair in Humanity at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, to a conference on theological education in Egypt to speak about theological education in the 21st century. Father John reminded us that we are not preparing our students for today's world, but for tomorrow's, and it is for this that we need to be equipping our people. Again, not for today's world, but for tomorrow's. If our situation is difficult now, it will be even more difficult in the decades to come. And it is for this reason that we need to be equipping our people. We are facing an increasingly hostile environment. We must also remember that the general level of education in the Coptic community has skyrocketed. In fact, Generation Z or Generation Z are the most educated generation ever, with at least half of them having university degrees compared to a quarter of Generation X, those born between 1965 and 1980. The mind of the 21st century person is very different to that of the 20th century person. Our young people are taught to think critically, question the sources, and investigate rigorously. Studies on young people show that they are forming their own spirituality from influences in a heavily saturated media culture. Young people living in a secular society are subject to an electronically conditioned global village culture that colors their view of religion itself and offers many alternative sources of meaning and values that can be incorporated into identity. The context in which ministry is happening today is vastly different from that of the family-centered, community-focused, and less secular world that existed in previous generations. Studies also show that contemporary spirituality is individualistic, eclectic, subjective, and secular, where little is drawn from the religious tradition and scant affiliation is made with a specific community. Yes, these studies that I mentioned were not done on Coptic young people, but I believe it would be naive to think that our own data would be vastly different from this, especially with second-generation Copts. How are we to face these challenges today? And the ones to come? Clergy, servants, and leaders need to be equipped to serve in the times we live in. We have clearly seen in our church history what happens when there is an absence of theological education. Is it enough for future clergy to be formed in Sunday school? 
priest servants, training, and other parish ministries? Habib Gerges made a case for this at the beginning of the 20th century. Does the current situation not beckon an even more pressing need? Maybe the opportunity for widespread theological education was not feasible in the 20th century due to many factors such as the immense growth of Coptic communities due to migration. Certainly, all the dedicated clergy, servants and leaders who served in the West with their blood, sweat and tears did a great job in ingraining Coptic church life, spirituality and identity amongst their young people. These efforts met the needs of the church in the 20th century. How will we meet the needs of the 21st century? Our young people, as we have all seen in our ministry, are different to previous generations, and we need to serve them faithfully, answer their questions thoroughly, and never sell them short. How can we do this without proper theological education? Habib Gerges faced many financial difficulties, but this can be understandable, as the church itself at that time faced many financial difficulties as a whole, and these constraints prevented him from implementing a lasting legacy of theological education that fit with his vision one that was at world standards. I think it is safe to say that the Coptic Church today in the West does not have these financial constraints. We have been blessed with the resources to expand and build many churches and buildings. Is it now time that we focus on devoting financial resources to theological education? sending students to receive accredited awards so that they could teach, sponsoring candidates for ordination to study before ordination so that they have the time and resources to faithfully devote themselves to their own formation. We spend tens of millions on beautiful churches that can become museum pieces or otherwise if we do not learn from the rich legacy that Habib Gerges left us and turn our attention to theological education. Sometimes people can make a case against theological education and say that we should focus on the pastoral needs of the community. Is it healthy to oppose pastoral and academic instruction against each other? If pastoral ministry is serving others, how can this be done if it is not grounded in the fullness of the revelation of God? The opposition between pastoral and academic is a false opposition. Both have to go together to be a truly apostolic foundation capable of addressing others. Allow me to illustrate this using an example. Habib Gerges introduced Sunday schools into the Coptic Church at the time when education was lacking. He used a model developed in England in 1788 and modified by Protestants in America in the century to follow. As we saw in the last 100 years, it bore much fruit. 
Where can you find the Coptic Church in the world without the Sunday School? In establishing the modern Sunday School movement, a key consideration was the viability of the movement, that is, starting up with no recent background, the emphasis was on providing a sustainable education where there had been none previously. However, the situation has changed, where teaching is now established in the church and the model of Christian education needs to be examined in light of today's generation profile and the orthodox understanding of education. Sunday school, which is a pastoral ministry, can only faithfully serve our children and youth in the 21st century if it is appropriately theologically grounded and culturally relevant to the demographic that we serve. This is not a matter of curriculum or content, but a matter of approach. How do we as a church understand the formation of the child the teenager and the youth? Is it something that happens in the classroom or in the life of the church? Such questions need rigorous study, investigation, and discussion, and is the type of conversation that is the task of theological education today. Theological education is not the same as any other academic endeavor. We must remember that theology is not an abstract discipline where we learn about God. We cannot set theology amongst all other academic disciplines. Such academic disciplines can be mastered through diligent study, teaching, investigation, and even experimentation. The same cannot be said of theology since it does not speak of God as though speaking of any other subject, but as the early Christians saw it, it is an affirmation of the divinity of the crucified and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. Theology is not merely some theoretical teaching about God, but as the Demas the Blind states, it is a power, glory, and force that is able to perform Great wonders, he says. Theology operates beyond intellectual reasoning and deduction. It can be said that theology is primarily an encounter between God and the one who attempts to theologize. Theology is not simply an academic enterprise. As we have seen from the earlier comments on the School of Alexandria, Theological education in the Alexandrine tradition was to disciple people to the Christian life. And this emphasizes that the classroom and the altar are inseparable in theological education. I will say that again. It emphasizes that the classroom and the altar are inseparable in theological education. The language of theology is not primarily formed in the classroom, but in prayer and worship, the whole liturgical life of the church. And this framework is expounded upon in the classroom or lecture theater and expressed practically in service or fieldwork. One may ask, 
why then we need to have accredited theological institutions. We cannot basically sell our students short. We must provide them with the highest possible caliber teachers. The students that we are presenting for service in the church will not only minister to those who have grown up in the church, but will minister to people whose lives are radically challenged by secularism, atheism, and relativism. All the struggles that we face, and we must not forget that we are called to share the gospel with others, especially in ways that they can understand. Our understanding of the faith has to be as sophisticated as anything that the world challenges us with. Our young people cannot be used to thinking in a critical manner at university and work and then come to church and find that their questions are not being answered appropriately. That's just unacceptable. We must give full and informed answers when we are asked a question, any question. We must be sure that the education we offer is of the highest caliber, and this demands integrity and accountability. Yes, it demands integrity and accountability. And this is a basic spiritual and educational principle, accountability. And this beckons that our education programs are assessed by others. There's nothing wrong with that. This comes through accreditation, where our institutions are regularly assessed by an accrediting or governing body. This ensures that those who teach are qualified to do so, and have spent years dedicated to wrestling with their chosen areas, and have been tested in both the methodology and content. Being accredited means full recognition from others and being called to account with others to ensure that we are acting with integrity. As part of theological education, we need to not only teach patristics, biblical studies, theology, liturgics, liturgical theology, languages, but also religious education, youth ministry, parish formation, the form the forming of a parish community, ministry to the sick and dying, apologetics, Christian counseling, prison ministry, and much more. And to get there, we need to promote and encourage scholarship. The time and effort to dedicate years to study and investigation in the spirit of discipleship. It is not enough to know facts. It's about a way of thinking, a methodology. Studying theology at an orthodox theological school is not like studying theology at a secular university. It requires the same intellectual rigor, but our teaching and study must be driven by the theological vision itself. In late antiquity, education was viewed as paideia, a training that sees above all formation. Formation examines the habits of the heart that constitute a good theologian. 
The focus is on identity rather than information, being a certain kind of person rather than knowing a specific body of knowledge. Seminaries train professional leaders who will both profess the faith in fresh ways and function as professionals, that is, display the skills and competencies appropriate to their calling. Church leaders today need what church leaders have always needed. Training in what theology is all about and training in how to do it on the ground. This is not only about having theological institutions, but respecting theological education as a church. What do those who have studied have to say to us as a church? This needs us to respect expertise more than experience. Just because someone has been serving in a church for a long time does not make them an expert in a certain area. It's about expertise. And it's about allowing the many voices in the church to sing a beautiful symphony of orthodoxy that is in line with the biblical, patristic, and liturgical witness. And I will conclude by one last point, as I mentioned earlier. We need to read and wrestle with the ancient texts. We must allow the writers of antiquity to speak to us today, both by consulting translations of the ancient sources and through the mouths of their modern readers. We must oblige our responsibility of academic honesty and have the courage to be accurate, precise, and specific in our research efforts. It is not enough to simply read the fathers. They need to be studied in terms of both their content and context. Today in the church we face an ongoing struggle where we have many voices pre presenting opposing views on various theological matters such as salvation, Christology, the Holy Spirit, original sin, and many others. And these have been points of contention for decades and the discussion becomes even more pertinent when it enters the sphere of ecumenical dialogue. We as a church need to be honest in examining our past, particularly the last century, to see if what was widely taught was in line with the writings of the church fathers. In doing so, we need to respect academic integrity, we cannot sideline those who have opposing views to the mainstream without adequate discussion and exploration, and this must be done using the appropriate theological methodology, something that is best learned through proper theological education. Those before us in the 20th century used what they had access to in sometimes challenging circumstances. It is now up to us to build on their efforts, even if it means reconsidering some of the teachings presented in the past, in light of our understanding of the Church's theology through its biblical, patristic, and liturgical witness. In doing so, we do not by any means question the piety or holiness 
of the lives of those whose teachings we may question. Rather, as a church, we consider that theology is not the work of individuals, but the work of the whole church, and we must reflect and learn from our past. Will we sideline those who have studied and have other opinions to the mainstream? Will we stay silent when clergy or laity preach doctrine that shows no appropriate academic or theological rigor? Embedding theological education as a pillar in the church protects us from those individuals who wish to make themselves self-proclaimed theologians, especially when the various communication platforms available today make it easy to do so. All of what is happening in social media, for example. Let us take the call to ministering in the West in the 21st century seriously by valuing theological education. This is achievable. All other major Christian denominations do this. They place great priority on those who they appoint as clergy, servants, and leaders to be adequately trained and educated. We, too, can do this in the spirit of the Alexandrine tradition, which will surely include unique elements that are not present in Western approaches to theological education, but which bring to light the richness of our 2,000-year heritage. A question for you this week. Do you think that our dioceses and parishes in the West are serious about theological education? What will it take to have three strong theological colleges in Europe, North America, and Australia? And the prayer. Pray that the Lord may guide the Coptic Church in the West to raise theological education as a top priority in its ministry. Until next week, be inspired by the Holy Spirit. Be sure to tune in next week when His Grace will be joined by Dr. Candice Lukasik and Dr. Michael Ekladios in an episode titled Coptic Immigration to the United States. Don't miss out on this stimulating conversation over a cup of coffee. To join the conversation, please visit our website, coffeewithbishopsuriel.org. After you listen, you can really help out by rating the show. Thank you for listening to Coffee with Bishop Suriel, a podcast for all things Coptic. To join the conversation, please visit our website, coffeewithbishopsoriel.org. And always remember, the best way to start any morning is with God and a cup of coffee.